Welcome to the Sticks and Stones and Broken Bones podcast with Rock Valley Physical Therapy. When you're looking for solutions to pain, we are here to help. Whether success for you means lifting a grandchild, getting back to work, or simply walking up the stairs without pain, Rock Valley Physical Therapy is here to help with compassionate, expert clinicians whose goal is to make care as fun and easy as possible. Each episode, we will spend time learning from healthcare providers and patients in hopes of offering solutions to your own aches and pains. Hey listeners, welcome back to Sticks and Stones and Broken Bones, the Rock Valley podcast with your host, Sam Huey, coming to you live from Waukee in the Greg Monson recording studio. We've got limited time today, squeezing this in between a couple of patients, so we're going to get right down to it. We're going to talk about a technique called blood flow restriction today, um, give you a little bit of background on, from my perspective on blood flow restriction. This is not currently a treatment technique I do. Um, I first learned about this, gosh, probably 10 or 11 years ago. It was almost kind of fringe, uh, fringe medicine, fringe treatment at the time, as far as I understood it. And I remember seeing a story on ESPN about it um, with NBA players. And of course, professional athletes get to use all the cool tools. You know, they, they rehab eight hours a day when they're hurt. Um, it's a full-time job for them versus the average person. So at the time I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, but you never know, is it gimmicky or, you know, is it a legitimate treatment technique? And then uh, I had a student shout out to Clint Simplot. I believe he's down at Vanderbilt now who for his in-service on his uh, rotation with us gave a presentation on blood flow restriction. And the title was um, blood flow restriction is it a real thing or is this a thing? Um, so we've got uh, my friend today, Luke Ackley is here to, to tell us whether or not blood flow restriction is a thing. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, welcome. And uh, hopefully we can have a good conversation here around this and, and learn a little bit and talk through uh, what blood flow restriction is and, and how we apply it. Uh, I, like yourself, um, had heard about this a while back and um, just like anything else, you, you initially hear about a technique and you, you want to vet it out. You want to make sure that the science supports what we're doing. And as time has went on, for me specifically, this has uh, continued to be supported via the literature. And um, that's been an exciting thing. And, and I'm happy to talk about how we apply it here in practice. Uh, just for the listeners, uh, like I said, my name is Luke Ackley. I'm a physical therapist with Rock Valley. Um, I am the regional manager for the Central Illinois region, work out of Peoria, Illinois. My primary background is in orthopedics and sports medicine. And uh, not only have I been able to utilize some of these techniques within treating patients, but uh, also do some, some sports performance. So I train athletes and uh, can bring that side of the, uh, the equation to the conversation too. Yeah, Luke and I have had some great conversations about treating athletes, especially kind of at higher levels. So this is this is a great uh, person to, to have this discussion with. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about it. So um, first of all, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is blood flow restriction a thing? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah, blood flow restriction is a thing. Um, the nice thing, like I talked about, if we were to go back in time, even five, 10 years uh, the amount of support that we would have seen in terms of research on it really wasn't out there. And I think currently there's, there's upward of a thousand research studies being con conducted on the, on the topic. And what we found is it's, it's supported. Um, we know that it can be uh, definitely a supplement to what we do. It's not the, the primary thing that we still do, but it is a, a very specific and valuable supplement 
to, uh, to standard care. So just for the audience specifically, you're probably saying, okay, what's blood flow restriction training? Or you'll hear it uh, referred to as occlusion training. And specifically, it's, it's a method of training where we partially restrict arterial blood flow and fully restrict venous return during exercise. And you're probably asking yourself, okay, how does that occur? Uh, we actually use a tourniquet. Um, it's, a, it's a medical grade tourniquet. And depending upon if we're using it on the arms or legs, it's, it's usually kind of on the, uh, the upper, upper thigh uh, for the legs or the upper arm for the, uh, for the upper body there. So, so tell us a little bit about how, how this works, maybe how, how do you implement it with a patient and then what's the, what's the physiology behind it? Sure, so specifically when we talk about getting strong, um, there's, there's two really different mechanisms of which we go about doing that. One is we try to get more muscle fibers or more motor units to contract. And, and that's basically saying, hey, can we get everything firing? Um, and usually you see that within standard strength training and you see that under heavy load. So that's what you would think about with your typical high load resistance training. Um, the second mechanism is, is what we would call metabolic stress or kind of that feeling of, of the quote pump when we're, when we're working out. And that's where we're starting to get a buildup of, of byproduct uh, called lactic acid um, when you're exercising basically in absence of adequate oxygen. Um, so those are two of the main things that drive this, uh, I'm going to say hypertrophy or growth of muscle. The nice thing about blood flow restriction specifically for our application in the clinic is the people we see are injured. So their ability to tolerate high load resistance training, which we know is what's important to, to gain strength and build hypertrophy isn't there. Um, they could be coming off surgery. They could be coming off a, a tendon injury, whatever. And we had to find ways to supplement and work around the system to try and gain strength um, and prevent atrophy, uh, which are two huge components of uh, some of the things we fight, especially in early rehabs. Yeah, so <clears throat> almost kind of a hack around the, uh, the system, right? So you don't have to load heavy, but you can still impact that muscle's strength and, and mass. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if we look at normal rehab, lots of times we're working at like half of a one rep max, which is what's the maximum amount of weight you could do for that exercise. And when you look at that, we're technically probably working more on muscular endurance. We're not necessarily gaining strength or, or what's called mus muscular hypertrophy or enlargement. And so what it really takes to do that is, again, it's a high load, which is more probably 60 to 80% of that one rep max. And the difficulty going back to our rehabilitation setting is we can't do that without potentially um, causing increased swelling or, or more increased pain with an acute injury. So the nice thing about blood flow restriction is with the tourniquet inflated, we're usually able to work out at loads of 20 to 40% of that one rep max and get the net effect of the heavy resistance strength training, which is more of that 60 to 80%. Uh, so let's load through all that tissue that's trying to heal. Um, we get the benefit, but without the, I'm gonna say the negative effects of uh, trying to do too much too early. Yeah, it sounds like an all around win. Um, when are some times maybe that Blood for but blood flow restriction would not be appropriate. I mean, it sounds like it would benefit a lot of different people, but obviously there's certain cases that we can't or shouldn't use this. 
Right. Yeah. Um, well, well, two different things really to talk about. And I think probably the question you're asking yourself or others would ask themselves is, is this safe? Uh, and it's a very fair question. So when you look at utilization of just tourniquets and surgery, and we look at the time that a tourniquet's inflated, you know, tourniquets can be inflated for, you know, up to two hours in surgery. And you, if you look at the complication rate from that, it's 0.04. So that's, that's a tremendously low complication rate for people that are appropriately screened. When you look at blood flow restriction, the tourniquet is up for maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes at most during a session. So relative to a time frame would you would see in a surgical tourniquet um, being inflated, this is this is way less and, and I feel like much safer. The other big things that you you talk about are just, you know, how does it how does it do in terms of muscular damage or what are some of the other side effects or complications? And really the two that stand out in the research are what's called petechial hemorrhage or little um, ruptures of our little blood vessels. It'll look like bruising. Uh, and about 13% of people report that. And then numbness about 1% of people. But again, even of those that have the numbness, it's usually uh, there and gone very quickly. So I feel like it's a, it's a very safe thing to do. Um, in again, people that are appropriately screened. So we have a whole process we go through um, with patients and, and there are certainly things that we know specifically that we won't be able to do it. So if a person has a blood clot, if a person has a history of stroke, if they have uh, high blood pressure, um, maybe circulatory issues, uh, easy bruising, cancer, some of those things definitely we're screening out. We're making sure we don't do it with those individuals, but in the right individual, with all those things screened out, it is a tremendously safe technique. So you talk about the safety from the patient side. Um, let's think about it from the provider side. Who, who is able to do this? I mean, is there, uh, are, are there laws or rules on who can do this or is it more people that are just trained appropriately? How does that look? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, based upon state to state practice act, this could, this could vary a little bit. Um, but with our practices primarily being in Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, um, we're appropriately trained to, to definitely apply the technique without problem. Um, we for us, physical therapists. Yeah, mean, yeah, meaning physical therapists. And, and you'll certainly see the technique used by physical therapists. You may see it used by occupational therapists, athletic trainers, chiropractors, um, physicians are, are, I'm going to say, the primary people you're going to see it used by. But then honestly, even in the strength and conditioning world, uh, people will use the e-sinks. Um, and even individuals, honestly, there's, there's individual units that you'll see people use. And there's a variety of differences in those units. But um, for me, the, the most important thing is that a person has done enough background to ensure that it's applied safely and correctly. And, and when you go back to the beginnings of blood flow restriction, it worked. Um, but it was imprecise. We, we really didn't necessarily know how much occlusion we were doing um, and how much we weren't. And the methods of which we were able to check that weren't very accurate. So part of the evolution in blood flow restriction training over the past five to 10 years has been more accuracy in the equipment, um, which I, I think means a safer application of this as a technique. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great answer. Um, so one of our topics we're going to talk about is what different diagnoses can BFR be used for. So I put together a list of 
nine items. I'm going to rapid fire them at you. Give me a yes okay. or no. There's no maybe on these, okay? <laughs> okay, deal. And then I'll let you explain yourself after the fact. Sure. All right. Can blood flow restriction be used for lateral epicondylitis? Yes. Wrist fracture? Yes. Patellar tendonitis? Yes. Herniated lumbar disc? Uh, sure. <laughs> Achilles tendonitis? Yes. Headaches? That one is a stretch. He's, he's thinking hard on that one. I was trying to yeah. get him to say no. Yeah. Uh, knee osteoarthritis. Absolutely. TMJ. In certain application. Okay. And then post-op ACL. Absolutely. All right. Don't you, don't you love how I, how I do the, uh, the whole clarifier thing? Yeah. I said yes or no, but there was a couple, uh, sure. <laughs> There's <clears throat> there. And the reason for that there are very direct uh, applications. So some of these orthopedic, these tendon-based or surgical-based, those are the most common things that we're going to use it for. There is research to um, what's called a passive application of this, this technique and a systemic effect that we get. Um, so when you talked about some of those specific things like headaches or uh, the lumbar disc herniation or even TMJ, to say we can put a tourniquet around, you know, somewhere around the neck. No, that absolutely doesn't work. But there are systemic effects um, that we know based upon the research that maybe there's some application, um, especially early on after, uh, you know, something like this is acute. Um, that may be something that we can use. Okay. So it, it sounds like the, the post-op and the tenderness type things are what you're finding yourself use it the most frequently for. Um, if you don't mind, without giving away any confidential information, I want to know a little bit more about what a session or a treatment looks like. So if you can think back in the last week of a, a session that you had with somebody and just give us the basics of like what the diagnosis was and how you utilized it, that would be awesome. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go to, I have a, an ACL that's eight weeks out and the application looks like, you know, they'll come in, they'll warm up. Um, we'll do some, some balance training. We'll do um, some range of motion type work um, still that they need to clean up. And then from an application standpoint, I start with traditional strength training. So if they are appropriate for certain traditional strength training exercises, meaning that they don't cause increased joint discomfort, we will do those things first because they, it's more of a, um, we'll call it a neurological stimulus. And then after that, we'll, we'll go into blood flow restriction. And typically when we do blood flow restriction, we're going to do approximately four, maybe three exercises under that occlusion. And so what it'll look like is we'll, we'll put a tourniquet on the upper thigh. Um, we inflate it to, to about 80% of max occlusion. And what that means is we, we, the, the cuff is inflated to the point where it um, completely takes away blood flow to the leg. It deflates and then it reinflates to about 80% of that number we start doing our exercises and within each exercise, the protocol that's been shown to be the most effective is four sets, um, 30 repetitions of the first, and then 15 repetitions of the three after that with 30 second rest intervals in between. And that protocol specifically is designed to, within the first set, fatigue the muscle by, um, we're pulling oxygen away. So not to get too detailed, but you have different muscle fibers 
you have what are called endurance fibers, type one fibers, and you have type two fibers, which are more your strength fibers. Usually the first set or two, by taking oxygen away, we wipe out those endurance fibers. So they're fatigued to the point where they can't help. And what it does is it biases your strength fibers, especially within those last two sets. And usually those last two sets will be to failure. So, I mean, this is hard. And like I said earlier, usually you're using about 20 to 40% of a repetition maximum based on whatever exercise you're doing. So if I were doing squats, for instance, and let's say my maximum was hundred pounds, the load that we would be using would be 20 to 40 pounds with blood flow restriction. Yeah. And the other great thing about that, I don't think you mentioned this is, you know, obviously we're not going to overload the joint. We're going to work the heck out of those muscles, right? But the joint that is that new ACL, they're not going to be stressed there, you know, because of the small load that's placed on them mechanically Absolutely. that way. Yeah. So what does it feel like? I mean, I'm assuming you've done this yourself. So yep. on that third or fourth set, what, you know, what's it feel like? Yeah. If you can imagine in a, uh, in a traditional strength training session, if you've done that and, um, where you're working hard enough to where you're getting to failure, that's what it should feel like. Um, that's the stimulus that we need. That's going to, um, push the body forward with, um, releasing growth hormone and, and some of the things that we know happen that'll stimulate that metabolic pathway toward gaining strength and hypertrophy. So that's what it'll feel like. It'll feel very challenging. Um, the other benefit that we've seen, there's, there's no doubt a tourniquet on your leg and exercise and exercising isn't necessarily the most comfortable thing in the world. So people will say, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable, but what's been surprising to me and one of the most, um, I'm going to say beneficial things is let's say I'm that ACL and I have a little bit of knee soreness. When I put the tourniquet on, it's almost like I distract my brain, right? So the brain thinks about, Hey, there's this tourniquet on there and now I'm exercising. And all of a sudden I've forgotten about my knee pain. Um, so the dual benefit is we get this strength gain, but lots of times we get better contraction because it doesn't hurt. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating process, but very, very challenging. Right. It's the old, your knee hurts. Well, I'm going to punch you in the shoulder and now your knee doesn't hurt anymore. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so uh, kind of what you're describing, I mean, that, that good pump that like your muscles are smoked cause you're working them so hard. It sounds like a lot of athletes can probably relate to what that feels like. Um, and I think a lot of times when we hear blood flow restriction, we think about athletes and, you know, primarily, but it sounds like you're using this for uh, lots of other populations too. So I guess two-party question, how does a 65 year old person that just had a knee replacement, how do they respond to that sensation if they've never experienced that before? Um, and then what other populations is it used for commonly? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and you're totally right. I, I think traditionally when you see new techniques come out and you see medicine that's new and it's on the cutting edge, typically you're going to see things tried. So for instance, blood flow restriction training um, in the United States was primarily used initially by the Department of Defense and uh, from there moved on to professional sports and became, you know, readily available and used in professional sports and probably based on cost and training has now trickled its way down into the clinic. So yeah, I, I think the, the initial application was toward an athletic population, but what we've seen in the clinic is great success with maybe people that have knee osteoarthritis who aren't quite ready for that knee replacement. 
but yet are really struggling and really need the the prehab potentially if if a replacement's in their future. Um, and the and the benefit is sometimes these individuals can't work hard enough to gain strength, so they can't have enough resistance necessarily because it, it hurts their knee. And so when we when we supplement with the blood flow restriction, now we're able to use less load, but get the same good net effect of the the strength and hypertrophy, which has been a, a great benefit. And the other thing I would say in in general, when you hear something like this, is some people are a little taken back or concerned. And we don't start with, you know, I, I talked about this range of 20 to 40% of a one rep max. We start at 20%. And they always tell you, don't necessarily um, turn down the, the tourniquet in terms of the, the appropriate amount of occlusion that we have. We, we reduce load if the initial exercise is hard enough to where a person is struggling with that. Um, so we definitely make modifications and there's a optimal amount that we would like to see, but the reality is sometimes we don't get to optimal immediately. Sometimes it takes a little time to get there and that's fine. Uh, it's totally fine. But like I said, the exciting thing from us is this is a population of people that we have really struggled with options and in the rehab setting specifically, I think it's a great application. Yeah. You know, with that <clears throat> knee arthritis, uh, you know, mid sixties, maybe population, you're right. But the number one thing we can do for them is build strength, but oftentimes they don't tolerate that well. So they're limited on what options they have, you know, certainly aquatic is an option, but that, you know, you're not necessarily able to push the muscles like you could with something like this. Um, so it sounds like just a lot of really good patient education on what to expect, what it's going to feel like, um, kind of setting them up for success on that. And then it sounds like if, if the, correct me if I've misheard you, if the stimulus is too much for them at that time, whether it's a physical stimulus or maybe the psychological stimulus is too much, you decrease the resistance, not the amount of occlusion you said. Correct. Yeah. Okay. You try and keep the, keep the occlusion the same, but reduce the resistance. Um, and by reducing the resistance, you're reducing the demand that the, that the muscle is needing for oxygen. Um, sure. And that's a way to pull back on the intensity. Sure. And, and over time they would, they would build a tolerance to that and, you know, start to adapt just like any other mo modality of exercise. Right. And I wouldn't say that there are times where we'll pull back on the occlusion a little bit. So first few times that you're working with it, honestly, it's a ton of communication with the patient. Um, obviously if it's, if it's too uncomfortable, you know, the patient's not going to want to you know, complete, you know, more sessions moving forward. And the intent is that there's this progressive exposure to pressure and load. And by doing it, uh, we really have some great possibilities, some things that we can achieve that we were not able to achieve without this, to be honest. Um, and I think the, the applications, talking about the research that's out there and the thousand plus papers, the applications are just growing by the day. I mean, we're, we're finding out more populations that are, are benefiting from this, um, you know, amputees, tendon conditions. Uh, we talked about the, um, some of the osteoarthritis stuff, but just uh, more of a geriatric or an elderly population in general of walking. So they've, they've done some really cool things. And uh, like Sam had said, some of the, I must say the newsworthy individuals that you'll hear is, 
you know, like Alex Smith, who was a quarterback for the Washington Redskins, had a, you know, a traumatic um, lower, lower leg fracture with multiple surgeries, uh, Tiger Woods. Uh, these are some of the people that have used this technique in their recovery. And I'm not saying that's the only thing that they've used, but uh, these are a couple of the headliners that, that have certainly um, spoke to the benefit of they've, what they've been able to get out of the technique. Yeah. And it's great to see it, um, you know, getting published more in the journals, um, you know, that now that we know it's safe, if it's performed correctly with the right patient population, definitely becoming more mainstream and uh, looking forward to it uh, becoming an option in more of our clinics. That's for sure. So Luke, anything else that we missed on our uh, outline here? I think we hit it all. No, I think we did good. I think right. we did good. Cool. Yeah. If people are interested, just, uh, I mean, reach out, ask questions. I think um, sometimes we don't know what's possible until we, you know, do our background and research. And um, like I said, it's it's an area that's definitely we're growing in our knowledge base. We don't know everything yet, but uh, the early indications based on the research are very favorable, and it's a great application for rehab. Absolutely. So if you live in uh, in our area, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, feel free to reach out to any Rock Valley, and uh, if if that particular clinic doesn't offer it, we can certainly find you somebody that does. If you live outside of our area, feel free to call your local PT or, you know, look, ask around friends, family recommendations and see if anybody offers this type of treatment. If it, if it sounds like it may be something that would benefit you. So Luke, thanks for being on today. This was, this was great. I learned a lot. Wonderful. Yeah, no, it's, it's always fun to have great conversations, Sam. Yeah. Let's have you back on. We'll find a new topic next time. And, uh, Thanks to everybody that was listening. Remember to check out the website at rockvalleypt.com as well as our Facebook and Instagram for more info about Rock Valley and how we impact our communities. We have over 50 clinics now serving Iowa, Illinois, and Nebraska. Our employees live out our tagline every day with the goal of making better lives. Mm-hmm.